look at two chapters this morning. We're going to, uh, as we go through Isaiah, there'll be times where I just go through one chapter, uh, two chapters, uh, uh, it could be three or four chapters, um, <clears throat> and then sometimes we'll slow down and take a smaller chunk, but uh, <clears throat> I do this just because I think that these two chapters kind of fit, they not only fit together, uh, we could probably break it into two messages, but they fit together well, they just designed to be a clear contrast, and and so we want to take both of them because they really do show there's a common theme between these two chapters. <clears throat> and again, because uh, the passage is, is a little bit along, on the long side, uh, we'll read the scriptures along uh, as we go in our sermon. So uh, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer again. Father, we thank you that we can come to your word and we thank you that uh, you speak clearly to us. You speak to us words that, uh, that are true, words that are sure, uh, words that encourage and comfort your people. And Father, we thank you for this book of Isaiah. We thank you that not only did it bring comfort to uh, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, but Father, that it brings comfort to people of uh, this nation and this city and this church. Father, we pray that you would cause us to hear exactly what you wish us to hear. Speak to each one cause us to see our, our own need for you, our merciful God, our need for the Messiah, our need for Christ, and help us to, yeah, to always examine our hearts, Father, and cause us to turn away from those times when we depend upon ourselves and when we ought to be depending and wholly trusting in you, our God. We thank you, Father, for this time. Pray that your spirit will work, do your work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> You'll notice in this, in this morning, just in the bulletin, uh, that we're going to have a little bit of uh, a 401 Terraval update at the end of our service. So uh, <clears throat> about 10 minutes to go to the end of service, I'll, I'll cut wherever we're at and we'll go into our, our time. But so we have a little more time in case you're wondering, wow, I have a lot of time. Hope I don't get confused and think I'm going to go all the way to the end and take all our time and give you a, uh, a longer than necessary message. So, as we look to Isaiah 3 and 4, uh, there's, a, there's this, just a, a theme of, that we're going to be learning today. It's, by the way, it's, uh, the title is that uh, just most of my titles that I've been taking from the sermons are just quotes from uh, the, the book and uh, the quotes from the, the passage. It kind of helps to, usually I try to pick a quote that's reflective of the theme of, of this message, of the, ser- of the chapter, and uh, this morning's um, title does that. Anyways, the Bible often warns the people of God from trusting in man instead of God. Uh, that is, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, and, and the northern kingdom as well, they tended to put their trust in, in mankind, whether in themselves or in other men, uh, other nations around them. Um, and they would put their trust and hope in, in other people more than God himself, who was their God. And what we learn is, throughout the scriptures, that when we do that, when we put our trust in man more than we put our trust in God, then that's really sin. In fact, it's the heart of sin, you may say. You gotta just think about uh, Genesis 3, uh, when Adam uh, decided to take the fruit of the, the forbidden fruit. Uh, what was he thinking? He was really thinking, well, I trust my own thoughts more than I trust what God's thoughts are. When we believe what mankind says instead of what God says, that is sin. Even 
when it's still in our hearts. When we put man's opinions and thoughts above God's revealed truths, that is sin. And this trust in man extends not just to what we believe and what we think in our, in our mind, but also the things that we value, the things that we find security, the things that we hope in. And when we trust in man, we tend to value the praise of men instead of the praise of God. So a lot, sometimes when you feel that, oh, I really want someone to, be, to give me praise, or I really, I'm looking to receive the praise of my bosses or, or others, then sometimes that can be a trusting in man as opposed to a trusting in God. When we also trust in man, we find security in our connections uh, with people we know, whether powerful people, important people, because they can allow us to get things or to, to get places easier than without knowing them. That's, that can be a trust in man. God in his word gives us much warnings about trusting in man and not in him. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, Jeremiah, or God says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And that's a good definition of trusting in man because there are, it's not that we don't trust in general people. We, we, most of us probably grew up trusting our parents. That's not necessarily a sin of trusting in man. But what God says here, especially in Jeremiah 75, is that when you trust in mankind, a sinful trust in mankind, and as well as uh, the, the strength of man, is when it turns your heart away from the Lord. When it turns you to trust more in man than in the Lord. That's, that's what the sinful trusting in man is. As we study our pastors this morning, the sin of trusting in mankind is one that God condemns in his people. This sin, of course, is, is quite subtle. I'm thinking about it. Wow. There are many times probably in my own life that you might not, may not be aware of it, but I am really trusting in myself, trusting in mankind, fellow men, looking to the praise of men, looking to find security in men rather than uh, in the Lord, my God. And so I pray that as we look at this passage, we would cause to examine our own lives for areas in our lives where we may trust in man more than we trust God. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, that we're looking at this morning, or Isaiah 3 and 4, is in this section, Isaiah 2 through 5. It forms one unit. It's helpful for us to look again at the last, uh, chap- last verse of chapter 2 to give us a context. There, Isaiah warns Judah to stop regarding and esteeming man whose life is simply a vapor. Even as we read in Isaiah 40 this morning, it's, a man is like a grass. It's like even the glory of man is like flowers. They had been, uh, Israel or Judah had been trusting in man, and that was sin. And God's judgment then, revealed to, uh, to them in, in these two chapters, will show the folly of such trust, the foolishness of trusting in man, and the need instead to trust in the Lord. And so that's, that's kind of what the passage is about. For an outline for us today, we're going to look at three prophetic revelations that display the vanity of trusting in man and the need for trusting in the Messiah. Mm. And so let's look at the first point. The first prophetic revelation that we find that points us to our, uh, our need for the Lord and, and, and warns us from trusting in man is that the Lord will judge Judah's leaders. In this Chapter 3, it's primarily a pass, the chapter on judgment. And then in chapter 4, uh, it's going to be a passage that brings comfort. So 
in here, chapter 3, we find the first part of chapter 3, the Lord will judge Judah's leaders. We've already kind of uh, looked at chapter 2, where it describes the coming judgment of the day of the Lord. We talked about that day, that's a future day. Uh, from the standpoint of the Old Testament saints, they didn't know when that was coming. They just thought, assumed the Messiah would come. They didn't see the first and second coming. But this is the day of the Lord, that future day, that even from our standpoint, that future day when Christ would come, would, would, would judge the world and establish his kingdom. And for us, even as we look at this passage, the question for us, again, is, and the interpreter is whether this judgment that's mentioned in this chapter is a continuation of that day that was mentioned there in chapter 2, verse 12. And, uh, you know, I've already kind of mentioned that it is. But as good ex- uh, interpreters, we should always ask us, does, is it that particular day? Because sometimes the day or that day, the day of the Lord, is a reference to a, a nearer fulfillment, a nearer, that is, at least for the Israelites, it was that judgment of the Babylonian captivity. As we look at this whole chapter, we take it as a whole, especially in light of what we find in chapter 4, this passage really is, will find its ultimate fulfillment in that future day of the Lord. However, we do find that, in, that there is a, a sense of a near fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, if you will, of these prophecies that are going to be, we're going to, we're going to look at it, they will be, <clears throat> they'll be reflected in the, that near fulfillment of the Babylonian captivity. But the Babylonian captivity, even when it, God's judgment upon Israel is meant always is meant to be a like a a picture a sim, a a prefigure is the is the right word of that future fulfillment. So let's take a look then at this coming judgment that God declares for Judah, and boy, oh my, oh, mm. we need a bigger screen. <laughs> okay, no, we can. I can need a bigger put bigger fonts up there for myself. <clears throat> but uh, you have your Bible. So you know, this is verse 1 to 7. In chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, we read these words. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. Uh, so you see that word for. It tells you that it's connected to what came before. And the immediate verse that came before was really the condemnation of Judah for their trust in man. So, so he says, well, this, the, why is this so foolish to trust in man? Well, here's why. For God is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah all these men whom you put your trust in. You're going to see how finite they are, how, un, how they are. Though you think they're going to be around, they're not always going to be around. What's more, and long, uh, for, as, long as well as, as their dependence, their the removal of those leaders, but as, there's also a mention here that God's going to remove everything that they depend upon, even things like bread and water. And you can think about, uh, particularly with the Babylonian captivity, uh, there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a siege upon Jerusalem where they basically they're starved out. And you know, really, if you don't have water, if you don't have um, food, uh, as and you're kind of being besieged as a city, uh, you eventually lose uh, to your your. Those who are putting siege to your city. Anyways, we read on verse 2 and following the emphasis on the the judgment of removing the leaders. This is whom God will remove along with all the food, the bread, and the water. He will remove the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. 
And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, Hey, you have a cloak. You shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. Verses 2 to 3 essentially describe for all the various leaders that God is going to remove from Judah. Can you imagine, you know, if God was going to remove from our nation all those who are our leaders, all of a sudden all our uh, government political leaders of this world were just removed. And some of you, you know, cynics out there say, oh, that's great. But our society will fall apart, you know. You work for our, you know, you work for the government, you know, we, you know, people kind of, you always get, you know, people make complaints about government, you know. But the fact is, you guys do a great job. You uphold our society. If all of a sudden all our government leaders were taken away, society would crumble. Uh, there would be chaos in this world. And that's what's described here as we think about, <clears throat> as, as God says, I'm going to remove all these kinds of leaders. This, is, this was actually fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity. According to 2 Kings 24, 14, there it describes how this was fulfilled. There it says <clears throat> of God, when Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem, this is what it says. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. That was part of God's judgment upon Israel, upon sinful, rebellious Israel, Judah, because he allowed Babylon to conquer them and all their, their leaders, their, their skilled, work, skilled uh, people, Craftsmen, smiths were all taken into captivity as slaves. As a result, Judah will face a leadership vacuum. Uh, the passage that we read earlier will describe a societal collapse. They're going to be led by basically children, people who are uh, immature. Uh, there's going to be oppression among one another because these are people, people being put into place in, in leadership or, and they're desperate. And so people will oppress one another according to verse five, 4 to 5. Uh, and the nation will be such, in such turmoil that no one will want to lead the nation. If the problems are so great that no one will want to touch a position, they'll say, ah, no, don't put me there. So why does God judge the nation? We find the reason in chapter 3, verse 8 through 15. Again, we read our passage in uh, <clears throat> verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord, to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. O oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them, O oh, my people. Those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So the reason for why Judah experiences this judgment 
The reason is because of Judah's rebellion against the Lord. So their rebellion is stated here is in both word as well as in deed. We've already looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2 of how they were rebellious in their heart. They, they, offered, they offered sacrifice to idols even as they were worshiping the Lord. They did not obey God. Uh, they, they disobeyed him. Their hearts were far away from him. They took advantage of, of, of the poor and the needy. They neglected them. Uh, these are, were many numerous sins. But the greatest condemnation, the greatest sin of the nation Judah uh, was a condemnation upon their leaders. Their very leaders who were, uh, who were <clears throat> leading the way in doing evil. We look at, just even looking at some of the mentions of the verse here, their leaders were leading people astray. They were confusing the people, according to verse 12. They devoured the vineyard. The vineyard is a reference to the nation of Israel, the elders and princes, as is verse 14. They were, instead of feeding the vineyard, taking care of the vineyard, they were just eating and consuming it. They robbed the poor. God, in in verse 15, charges them and says that they had been crushing God's people, and they had ground the face of the poor. That's, you know, that is the description of Israel's leaders, and that's why God brings this judgment, and that's why he removes these leaders from them, because basically these leaders had failed in their responsibility to take care of God's people. They had abused God's people instead. And so the Lord judges them by sending these very leaders into captivity so they would then, these leaders would learn what it means to be a slave, to be needy, and they would serve as slaves of a foreign people in Babylon. God's judgment of these leaders basically shows to us the vanity of trusting in our political leaders, in our governmental leaders, or we can even say in human leaders in general. Our, our natural tendency is to put our trust in leaders, whether it's at work or whether it's in, we, we learn that from home. In fact, uh, we learn it with our government, and that's something that is good. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. We should trust and obey our leaders. However, when we put our trust in our leaders more than we put our trust in God, when our trust in, uh, for instance, particularly political leaders, when we think about controlling our world and how we can change our world more by the, the, the political realm than by the spiritual, through our, the spiritual realm of prayer and, and the proclamation of the gospel, uh, then we are trusting in man, trusting in our leaders more than we're trusting in God. And, that, that's, and that's the sinful attitude that God would warn us against because that's what, um, and, <clears throat> that's, and, and that's to some extent what Judah themselves were doing. Political leaders are ultimately just like ourselves. They're human. They are sinful as we all are. And it's foolish for us if we, to put our tr- trust or hope in our political leaders. And don't get me wrong, we should be involved in the political process. Our elections, our presidential elections coming up uh, next year, and we should be involved. We probably should be uh, following up on the, the primaries and, you know, seeing who are the candidates and trying to understand the issues and uh, even, and as well as understanding their faith, where their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if they profess that faith. And how, especially, especially that, because we, we don't want to put any hypocrites into, you know, uh, into office. You know? So... Even as we get involved in the political process, you know, as we uh, seek to 
influence our world through our, our participation in the civil realm of politics, we must never forget that our, our hope, our trust, our ability to change our world is, is, is in God, not in the ones who sit in office, not in the one who sits in the Oval Office or the one who sits in our city hall. Uh, these people, they can make, they make changes, but they make changes ultimately by the hand of God. It's God who makes those changes. And that's where our trust always must be in, first and foremost. So, because, so the Lord will judge Judah's leaders. He's going to remove them. So that is, if you're a person who's putting your trust in Judah's leaders, that's a foolish thing to do. That's kind of the point. The second point is this, that the Lord, or the second revelation is that the Lord will judge Judah's daughters as well. Judah's daughters according to uh, in verse, chapter 3, verse 16. And through chapter 4, verse 1. No less than the leaders of the city who are mostly men, the leading women of Jerusalem are also under God's judgment. This time the Lord begins with the reason in chapter 3, verse 16. The reason is this. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. That's a beautiful description. Uh, boy, anyways. The women here of, this, of Jerusalem, of Zion, Jerusalem, are also under God's judgment. And the reason they're under God's judgment is because they are proud. They are proud. They pride themselves, apparently, by the description that God has for them here as well as in the, in the latter verses, of their ability to influence. Their ability to influence. Leaders influence, but women, at least in this society, they may not have been in positions of leadership, but they could influence through seduction, their seductive eyes, it says here, or their appearance, their, how they move, their, but their mincing steps, the way you move. Uh, ladies, uh, you know, that's, yeah, okay. Well, men, you men too, the way you move could uh, also influence. And our outward appearance, right? We can influence people by our outward appearance too. And, and these are you know, not necessarily wrong in themselves, but when you pride yourself, that's the, God was condemning them for their pride, that they were, that is where it becomes a sin. It is apparent from the following verses that the women here that are condemned are not all the women. Uh, it's not necessarily that all the women, but the emphasis on, you look, notice the jewelry, the clothing. These are things that are only possessed by the wealthy women. And generally the wealthy women in those days would have been the leading women, the wives, the daughters of the leaders of the society. So these are the leading women of Jerusalem that God is condemning. Instead of being like a Proverbs 31 woman who influenced others by her example of faithfulness and service, these women sought to influence others through their external appearances and behaviors. And so God can pronounce a, a judgment upon them as well. This coming judgment is explained for us in chapter 3, verse 17, verse 4 through 1. So the judgment is described in these verses. We'll read these verses. 3, 17 through 24. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their ankles, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. 
Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. As we kind of just read through this list, it's a, you can see that these ladies, uh, they didn't need no uh, cosmopolitan glamour magazine to tell them how to dress. They already knew. You know, they, had, they were very much into uh, the, the finest things, the, the, proper, the appropriate accessories, the appropriate garments, clothing. Uh, they knew what to wear to really br- kind of stand out amongst themselves. And all that the women, basically, this verse tells us all that the women of Jerusalem found pride in, God promised to remove. God would take them away, whether it be their hair. Ladies, right, your hair, right? Well, see, my hair, that's it's messed up. But, uh, you know, some of you may spend some time getting your hair just right and, and good. That's actually not a bad thing. But when you get, they can, that could be go a little bit too far. Your clothing, your jewelry, verse 18 to 23, all, all descriptions of things that these women in Jerusalem were finding pride in. Not wronged. I want to emphasize that it's, it's it's not that it's not necessarily that having these things, having your hair fixed up, wearing nice clothes or jewelry is wrong. Those are not the issue. We can just go to Song of Solomon. You see that kind of description of a woman looking nicely, Solomon describing his wife. Rather, what God condemns is when a woman prides herself on her looks, prides herself on her clothes, more than priding herself in the knowledge of the Lord. Unlike the men, these women also would be taken into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Verse 24 is a, the contrast there of these various, uh, various uh, descriptions are really pictures of how things that they glory in are replaced with pictures of being a prisoner, a slave of war. But God would also remove one more source of pride from these women, and that would be their men. In those days, a woman's pride would be in, their, her pride can be in his woman as well. And in, maybe in some sense, we understand that. But chapter 3, verse 25 through chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Your men, this is still because as a result of God's judgment, your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn and deserted she will sit on the ground. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. A woman's pride was bound up in her husband. Her identity was bound up in her husband. Her husband, as the head of the household, would be in those days the one who would provide. He would take care of the industry, the household. Uh, the, the, he would earn, his, earn the key for the, for the family. And he would be, therefore, the provider for his wife and, therefore, part of her identity. But God's coming judgment would be so severe that many men would die. Many of these husbands, these women that had pride themselves in, in having married, basically were, were killed as a result of war. And they were gone. And so these men, whom, these husbands whom they had pride themselves in, more than God. And so remember, it's always, get, it's always the things that we pride ourselves in that take us away from really priding ourselves or rejoicing and glorying in God. For the leading women of Judah, they had put their trust in their looks and in their husbands 
They found their pride, their identity in those things rather than in God. And God instead wanted them to put their trust in him. That they would adorn themselves with God, his characteristics, faith in him. It is, and this is a sobering lesson if we could apply it to ourselves today for the women of God that are among our midst today. But this could you be true is, is true of men as well. We too can be just as focused on our looks as well as, as our identity with our spouses. When, but for the ladies here, when we ask ourselves, who do we look to emulate? Who are the people that we really look up to? Who do we want to be like? When you ask what is the world's answer, I think you can all probably give me a general idea. We find the answer in our magazines, in our entertainment websites, in our new, in our uh, big on the big screens. Our world generally teaches us to idolize and imitate the glamorous women we find in our in in those places, in those medias. Look like her, and you'll be great like her. Dress like her, and you will command the praise and adoration of others. Find yourself. A good man like a Brad or a Tom or a Channing or, <laughs> or whatever, you know, name it. You will have life and have it abundantly. We laugh, I know, because, well, Channing's probably not even in the top ten. <clears throat> but you and I know the appeal. We know the appeal. We understand how that kind of works. Is that if you were, if that was your husband, Brad or Tom, I'm going to who would not say, whoa, I am married to Brad or Tom? You know, or not one, both, but one. <laughs> that didn't come out quite right. But, you know, we, probably, we would think that would be something we could be proud about. See, and we would want to be like those kind of women who marry people like that. But when we regard and esteem such women... These glamorous women that we see uh, put, propped up for us in, in our society. We are trusting in women instead of God. Because ultimately, greatness, praise, life are not found in man or woman. It's found in God. It's found in imitating God. And trusting him, valuing him putting our trust and security and hope in him, not in what we look like, not in who we are married to. Those would be foolish. Of course, God, you know, it's not that you shouldn't get married. God, God, God uh, commends that for us. But that's not where our trust is in. God's judgment upon the leading men, the leading women of Judah, show us the vanity of trusting in mankind. In the following verses then, the Lord tells us who we should put our trust in. Who should we put our trust in? That's revealed by the coming of the branch of the Lord. Throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, along, along with the many prophecies of judgment, we find these prophecies of comfort. Even Isaiah 40 was a great example of that. Whole, all chapter 1 through 39 is generally a, of Isaiah is all generally about judgment. But chapters 40 through 66 are generally about the comfort that God brings. And we find this kind of a contrast throughout the book of Isaiah. We find it here in chapter 4. When we look at chapter 4, verse 2 to 6, we see that it's about the comfort of the coming of the Messiah. Verse 2, we read, In that day, 
The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. By the way, because of, it's because of this, these verses that tells us that this is speaking of the future day of the Lord uh, that, tell, that, gives us interp- that helps us to think about what uh, chapter 3 was pointing to as well, this uh, interpretive kind of help there. This phrase here that we find, the branch of the Lord... And this parallel statement, the fruit of the earth. Actually, I like fruit of the land better. I think the, uh, some of your other translations have the fruit of the land. Uh, these are parallel descriptions of the Messiah. They describe the Christ. They are words that describe, they're using botanical, uh, bio, you know, botanical concepts. The tr- a branch, a grow, something that grows, as well as something that's the fruit. And these, this growth and these produce uh, are really descriptions, are meant to be symbols or figurative descriptions of the Messiah. Now, we can't just say that. We should always take th- things literally if we can, uh, just as, as a matter of interpretation. And there have been some that have interpreted these passages to refer to other things. They say, no, it refers to the, the promised land, or they say it refers to the surviving remnant of Israel that will come out of the captivity. But the messianic view of these Two phrases is an interpretation that is both ancient as well as pre-Christian. It's not just the early Christians who held this view, but it's the, some of the Jews held this view as well. That the branch of the Lord and the fruit of the land is a reference to the Messiah. In fact, uh, when if you go to the look up, if you any read Aramaic, you could open up the Targums. The Targums are Aramaic paraphrases, sort of translation slash paraphrases, somewhat commentary on the Old Testament scriptures. And these are written about either first century or before uh, the time of Christ. And so these would have been basically the Aramaic Old Testament sort of, they were often read alongside the Old Testament scriptures to give explanation in the synagogues. And there it translates the word branch here as Messiah. Uh, when we look to the Dead Sea Scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you, you kind of look at the Dead Sea Scroll, it uses the phrase the branch of David as a messianic term when explaining the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 14. And so even the, the Essenes of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, period saw the branch of David as a reference to the Messiah. The Hebrew word, the branch itself, is a botanical term that refers to a something that is a sprout or a growth, something that grows out of something. It's a, like a vine that would grow out of something. The messianic concept had its very beginnings in David's words. In fact, in David's last words, recorded in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. There we read 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. This is David's uh, song, I think they call it. He says, Truly, is it not my house, is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? There, that word grow or make grow is this verb form of the word branch. It's the verbal form. So really, it could, will he not make it branch out? Is, you could even describe it. Uh, you could translate it. And so the growth or the fruition of God's Davidic covenant, his covenant with David, that to put a, one of a, a David's seed on an eternal throne where that would never end, that is, this is the promise of the Messiah, its fruition, its growth, 
David asked, will it not happen? And rhetorically, really, it's going to happen. It's going to be sure. And that's going to happen through that which is, through the one who is called the Messiah, the branch. In fact, four later Old Testament passages uses this term, the branch, to refer to the Messiah. Jeremiah 23, 5, 33, 15, Zechariah 3, 8, Zechariah 6, 12. In Jeremiah 23, 5, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, this is the Davidic covenant, a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. You see, the Messiah will be the pride and delight and the, of the remnant of Israel. He will be what they ultimately need. Those, those surviving remnant, those who are spared from God's wrath, are preserved for salvation. They are saved because of their faith in the Messiah. The people of Israel, God says, will no longer look, uh, look to their leading men and women for strength and hope. Instead, they will learn to look to the branch for their strength and hope. They will find beauty and glory of the, in the Messiah that far surpasses the beauty and glory of man. Their hope and trust will be in the Lord, the Lord who is the branch. Now, the effect of his coming is further described in verse 3 through 6. It will come about that he who is left in Zion remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. What we find here in this, what happens here in verse 34 is that in verse 34, we see a description of what's the Messiah's effect upon his people. His people will then be holy. Now, we ourselves, Israel as a nation was, was sinful. It's, it's not like they were going to all of a sudden just become holy, except unless God does a work in their heart. And that's when the Messiah comes, he will come, and he will, it says here, he will wash away filth. He will purge bloodshed. He will basically wash away and cleanse Israel of all sin. And that's how these people will be holy, will be known as holy. God's people will one day be known as holy. They'll be set apart. They'll be able to live holy lives as well because of the, the, the saving work of the Messiah. And what's more, their names will then be written down for life. It's recorded for life in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe this idea of a, that their names are written down in the book of life even because of their trust in the Messiah. In verses 5 to 6 of these, uh, this passage, his city, Jerusalem, will also be a place of glory and protection. Uh, when, if we had time, we would go and look at the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, uh, in his book, describes that there's a, very, there's a moment in the nation of Israel when the glory of the Lord basically starts leaving the temple. You know, the pride of Israel for the longest time in throughout history, was that their temple was, was, the, was the place where the glory of the Lord dwelt. That, in the holy of holies, you know. That is an amazing thing, that, that God's presence dwelt among them. And, but in Ezekiel, basically we see this kind of step by step as the glory starts leaving the temple and eventually just leaves completely. 
Eventually, Ezekiel would describe the return. And that's what is described here in verse 5 and 6, that the glory of the Lord will return to the temple one day when Messiah comes. Because the Messiah is none other than the glory of the Lord, the Son of God. You see, for the people of Judah, along on top of their sins of religious idolatry, they had sought life, glory, and protection in their fellow men and women. They lived lives focused on mortal and earthly glories. And God says, hey, it's all vanity. Don't trust in man. Don't trust in the glory. Don't pursue the glories of man. They are, they're like flowers. All men is like grass. And all men are like flowers at best. And they just perish. When we put our trust in those things, they to us look all beautiful. It's, oh, man, look at the flowers. But they will all perish like us as well. Here today, gone tomorrow, no eternal value. The prophecy of the coming of the Messiah reminds all of Judah that what they need is found in the branch of the Lord. They need the Messiah. That's what they need. They don't need man. They need the Messiah. In him is life, glory, and protection is the description in verse 5 and 6 as well. Shelter. And they need to trust in him, as do we. So let us just simply, as we kind of just come to let us learn from the example of the Israelites. Let's learn from these prophecies that God is going to judge, God promised to judge their leading men and their leading women. It's because they were basically, Israel was putting their trust in these people. And they were really, these people were failing them. Uh, some sinfully, uh, intentionally, like the, the political leaders. And some just in, un, kind of indirectly, like the leading women of the city who were set the examples for the, for the ladies to follow. God will remove them all. When we think about the people that we would trust, we should understand that one day when the day of the Lord, when, day, when the Lord comes, he will remove them all. No one will stand before the Lord. No sinner will stand before him. All will be removed. All those people you look up to in this world, you put your trust in, will one day die. And if they, if, unless the Lord comes back soon, they will all die and they face judgment before God. And no one will stand before him. Unless we put our trust in the Messiah, in the Lord himself. Our trust has to be in Christ. As we conclude, I just want to go to the, jump really far to the New Testament. It's interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus himself uses a, a botanical term to refer to himself. You probably wonder how many of you thought about it, even as we were thinking about the term branch. And then there it is in John, it's found in John chapter 15, verse 5 through 6. And there he says these words of himself, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them to the fire, and they are burned. Jesus reminds us that he is the vine. He is the one that is the instrument by which we all will live and grow. If we are not connected to him, if we are not, trust is not in him, then we will be thrown away, dried up, and be gathered and cast into the fire. That's, that's the threat of eternal judgment. But all who remain and abide and are connected in Christ, all who have repented of sin and believed upon Jesus Christ will find forgiveness of sins. We'll find that 
The Lord is all we need in this world. And we find that we will thrive. We'll find life. We'll find glory. We'll find protection. We'll find all the things that we long for, we look to when we look at other people. We say, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to be like that person. All that we long to be, that God has assigned us to be, that we need is found in the Messiah, in Christ, who is the vine. So if you have not already, please invite you to put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn away from trusting yourself or trusting others and put your trust in the Lord. For the rest of us, let us continue abiding in Christ, who is the branch of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you that we can look to Jesus Christ. We recognize, Father, that we ourselves fall short and the many times we put our trust in, in man, our own strength. We look to our political leaders for deliverance. We look to the examples of uh, leading women of our, of our world and, and look to them for, uh, for hope and for, uh, for something to, someone to imitate. Father, we know that ultimately all that we need and who we need is, is you, is your son, Jesus Christ, the branch of the Lord. Help us, Father, to continually be people who put our trust in you and not in mankind. For that would be folly, Lord. Help us to always remember that we are like grass. And all, and even the, the mightiest of men and women are like the flowers of the field. Father, the grass withers and the flower fades. But your word, not only written, but your living word, abides forever. Help us then to abide in him always. To never turn away from our dependence upon Christ for this life so that we would find our identity bound up in him. We would share in his life, his glory, and his salvation that he gives to us, to all who believe. Thus we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.